there, no pressure. <laughs> right, why don't you guys stand? Why don't you guys stand? I'm not going to ask you to do the uncomfortable thing and greet someone around you or make a new friend for those introverts <laughs> up there. But uh, just, just follow after me. So let's just move, move your head to the left, move to the right, your shoulder strokes, shake out your hands, just get loose. Okay. And sit down now. See? Um, comfortable, Grimmin? Uncomfortable? Great. We're in for a very uncomfortable morning. So um, just wanted to get you guys loosened up and, uh, and ready for it. Uh, as Dave said, we're in the midst of our Money Matters Generosity Month. And I've actually got in my notes here that I can, I'm going to do a shameless plug about our Faith at Work personal finance course quickly. Um, I've got the mic and no one can stop me. <laughs> so um, the, the, the theme of the Billiard Conference is equipping. Um, we're in the middle of our money matters and on the 7th of October, so the Saturday after the conference, the Faith at Work team is hosting a personal finance workshop um, for the whole day. So um, 8 o'clock to 4 o'clock, uh, we're going to be discussing your relationship with money, your spending patterns, we're going to go into your budget, we're going to help you discover emergency funds, we're going to do our best to try and equip and practically um, give you the tools to handle your money better. So if you are in debt, if you are married and you are disagreeing about your budget, if you are <laughs> young and about to start working, um, please come along. It's, the cost is 150 Rand, which includes a delicious meal from Charmaine. But um, Dara's the 7th of October. It's going to be really good. So, um, anyone else having a difficult financial time lately? ESCOM, double-digit food infl inflation, petrol price, it just seems like the perfect economic storm at the moment. And um, I have to admit, for us as a family, things have been really tough. So whether it's cars or appliances or, or anything else, nothing seems to have been immune to breaking down or <laughs> causing some sort of financial pressure. And not to mention the hospital visits. I think that we are on a first name basis with the ER staff at Greenacres at the moment for various reasons. But um, it's, been, it's been a very difficult time you know, financially. And I don't know whether I should blame Dave for that, but you know, if you want God to work in your life, then let Dave give you a topic to preach on six months in advance and then see what <laughs> God does in you. So, um, yeah. But um, just before my eldest son was born, so 2000, sort of beginning of, of 2000, um, I had my own business and um, things weren't going great. We owed money to just about everyone. Um, we had a new baby on the way. Business was pretty much non-existent. And um, yeah, I can remember crying in my wife's lap, going, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I had to go to all my creditors with my cap in my hand and say, listen, I can't pay you, I'll make a plan. But it was a really difficult time. God taught us a, a lot of faith, um, really worked deep inside and uh, I, this last while has been pretty much like that 
you know, I said to my wife, I, don't, I can't remember a time in, we've been married for 25 years, I can't remember a time apart from that where things have been so difficult. So um, if you guys are, are feeling the pinch or maybe the vice-like grip of death from a financial point of view, don't, you know, don't worry, you're not alone. Um, I, I went to go and see my financial advisor recently for some advice or hope or a miracle, um, you know, and I said to him, you know, aren't you, aren't you worried about what's going on in the world? You know, the rand and the dollar and the economy. And he was like, no, I sleep like a baby. So I said, really? I said, with everything that's going on, you know, with load shedding in the country and there's no money, he says, yeah. He says, I go to sleep for a couple of hours and then I wake up and then I cry like a baby for the rest of the night. So, um, so, so th this topic is really close to my heart. Um, not, not money, that would be uh, ironic and a bit worrying, but the, the effect that money has on us as Christians, you know, and how it affects our walk. And, um, you know, and like I said, it's been really, really tight for us financially. And I've really had to examine where my, my faith and my hope is. So, you know, let's, let's dive right into our message. You know, I think that the, the biggest lie that society has told us in, in, in our modern times is that money is neutral. That you can use money, that you can spend money, that you can save money without any sort of emotion attached to it. You know, it's, it's, you know, the lie is that it's simply a matter of exchange. It's a medium of exchange, it's a fact of life, and, you know, there's no emotion attached to it. Money is not neutral. It's not impersonal and it's not inanimate. You know, money has a life and power all of its own. You know, in the words of the esteemed warrior, philosopher and poet, Mr. Will Smith, <laughs> he said, money and success don't change people. They merely amplify what is already there. And if you're looking for a title for today's message, that's it. Money amplifies who you are. So, you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark 10. Um, we're going we're gonna to be looking at a very powerful illustration of this. Um, okay, so it's on the screen. So I'm reading from the Amplified Bible. It says, As he was leaving on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, you who are essentially good and morally perfect, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is, eternal salvation in the Messiah's kingdom. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is essentially good by nature except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely. Do not defraud and honor your father and mother. And he replied to him, Teacher, I have carefully kept all of these commandments since my youth. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all your property and give the money to the poor, and you will have abundant treasure in heaven. And come and follow me, becoming my disciple, believing and trusting in me, and walking the same path of life that I walk. 
But the man was saddened at Jesus' words, and he left grieving because he owned much property and had many possessions, which he trusted more than his relationship with God. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who are wealthy and cling to possessions and status as security to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed and bewildered by his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is for those who place their hope and confidence in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man who places his faith in wealth or status to enter the kingdom of God. They were completely and utterly astonished. And Jesus said to them, and they, and, and they said to him, Then who can be saved from the wrath of God? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people, as far as it depends on them, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So like I said, it's going to be an uncomfortable morning, so strap in. As we look at this passage, we're going to be looking at three things about money. The first one is, what is it? The second is, what should we do with it? And the third is, how should we live with it? So, what is it? Let's look at the passage. So, the man who we can deduce from the Synoptic Gospels is rich, he's young, and he's a man of influence, or a ruler. He runs up to Jesus, kneels before him, and asks what he needs to do to be saved. So, basically, an evangelist's dream come true. Um, and we can assume, I suppose, that he was sincere in his endeavors because he literally ran up and he knelt before Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus then lays out, lays out some commandments for him. And notice that they're all the socially orientated or the works orientated commandments to which the man answers that he's carefully kept them since his youth. So he's a religious man. Jesus then tells him that he's lacking something, that he should sell all of his property and give the money to the poor, and he will have abundant treasure in heaven and come follow him. Notice what the eager religious man's response is. He was saddened at Jesus' word and left grieving. Why? Because, it's an important word, because he owned much property and had many possessions. So let's examine this for a moment. Let's, let's have a look at these verses and identify that money has power. Richard Foster in his book, The Challenge of the Disciplined Life, says that money is not just a neutral medium of exchange, but a power with a life of its own. He goes on to say, and this is important, as long as we think of money in impersonal terms alone, no moral problems exist aside from the proper use of it. But when we begin to take seriously the biblical perspective that money is animated and energized by powers, then our relationship to money is filled with moral consequences. Behind money are invisible spiritual powers Powers that are seductive and deceptive. Powers that demand an all-embracing emotion. 
So Jesus clarifies this for us in Matthew 6, 24, where he says that we cannot serve both God and mammon. He places mammon on the same level as serving God. So there clearly must be some very spiritual forces behind mammon, behind money. And these forces have a life of their own. And they war for an allegiance over our hearts and our relationship with God. Someone once says that money does not make man powerful. Man makes money powerful. So let's look back in our passage. We see that the love of money caused this rich religious man to leave Jesus grieving because he owned much much property and many possessions. And the Amplified says, which he treasured more than his relationship with God. The man literally sacrificed his salvation for his possessions. I'd say there's some spiritual power there. Paul David Tripp in his exceptional book called Redeeming Money says, money is an accurate window on what is truly important to us. It exposes the fact that this side of eternity, it is really hard to hold in our hearts as important what God says is important. He goes on to say that many problems are always heart problems and that they're deeper than the size of our paycheck and the specificity of our budget. So this characteristic of money may be the hardest one for us to come to terms with. You know, no one of, none of us want to admit the sin in our heart and the way that it plays out in our financial situation. For instance, the debt we find ourselves grappling with may not be a problem of income or expenses, but it may very well be us asking money to do what it was never designed to do. To be a functional saviour for us. You know, Martin Luther so accurately observed, he says there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. And the last one I think for us in our modern society is the one that's most difficult for us. So as we look back at this passage, I think it's important to mention here that um, that it's possible to love money and to be religious. The rich young ruler said, Teacher, I have carefully kept all of these commandments since my youth. It's not possible to love money and to have a relationship with Jesus. He says, it says, but he was saddened at Jesus' words and he left grieving. So the two don't go together. So we've established that money is not neutral, that it's energized by spiritual powers that war for our hearts and minds and most importantly our relationship with Jesus. So I think the obvious question is, is then what should we do with it? Quite simply, give it away. A bit of a radical statement and that's what the, our generosity month is all about. That's the heart of it. 
You know, Jesus, Jesus' words to the, to the rich man in, in our passage that you've just read seem like a strong challenge, especially when he goes on to say that how difficult it will be for those who are wealthy and cling to possessions and status as security to enter the kingdom of God. Anyone else uncomfortable yet? I am. You know, as with most of Jesus' conversations with people, the, the, the surface conversation belies a deeper spiritual truth. You know, and he was, wasn't confronting the man about whether he loved money or not. He was confronting the man about what he worshipped most in his life. And, and I think there's a reason that Jesus chose the works or socially orientated commandments when he responded to the man, when he asked how to be saved. You know, he said, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not testify, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, father and mother. It was to reveal the, the man's religious heart. You know, when Jesus in Matthew 22 is asked what the greatest commandment is, he replies and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like this, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's Matthew 22, 36 to 40. If the man's heart had truly been after God and after his neighbor, he would never have walked away from Jesus' grief. He would have rejoiced and offered to give up all of his possessions. If he had loved God with, he, he didn't love God with everything because he rejected Jesus. He didn't love his neighbor as himself because he couldn't part with his possessions. Loving equals giving. There's no greater example of this than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John 15.13 tells us that Jesus loved us even unto the point of death. That he gave us. He gave his life for us. It says greater love has no one than this than to lay down or give one's life for his friends. So giving reveals what we truly value. Money or God? Tim Keller challenges, challenges our modern philosophy on, on life and material wealth when he writes this. The only way we can be free from the power of money and be sure we are free and not self-deluded is to give money away so much that we lower our standard of living. We must see that we live in smaller or less opulent spaces, that we take simpler vacations, that we spend less money on clothes and the like than we otherwise would. Radical generosity is a profound and undeniable evidence of the power of the gospel. The more Christians give their money to God and others, the more people will believe in and experience the living reality of Jesus Christ. That is true whether you literally give money to a ministry that wins 
people to Christ, or whether you are simply giving generously to your neighbors and to the poor. Christian giving changes people's lives. So how do we get, how do we get there? Jesus' disciples didn't know. To them, the rich young ruler running up to Jesus, kneeling at his feet, asking about salvation, would have been the epitome of what salvation and a changed heart should look like. So when Jesus tells them that it's more difficult for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to be saved, they are, and this is their response, completely and utterly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved from the wrath of God? That's verse 26. They couldn't understand how this man could not be saved. So Jesus revealed that it's only through a changed heart wrought by the Holy Spirit. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, as far as it depends on them, it is impossible. Now, are we talking about salvation here? But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, this passage in Mark also appears in Luke, in Luke chapter 18. And what's interesting is that if you turn the page and you, get, you look at Luke 19, we see the story of Jesus' encounter with another rich man. So let's read Luke 19, 1, 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and was very wealthy. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, but he could not see because of the crowd, and he was short in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus reached the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and welcomed Jesus with joy. When the people saw it, they were all muttering, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a notorious sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, See, Lord, I am now giving half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household because he too is a spiritual son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So what a radical change compared to the rich young ruler in the previous chapter. It says Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus with joy. And the, and the result of a welcoming of Jesus is a giving heart. You know, what's interesting is that according to the, to the law, Zacchaeus, when he says that if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will give back four times as much, he was giving way beyond what was expected of him. Way beyond, which was the, which was the epitome of a, of a changed and redeemed heart. There is no hesitation in him giving away his possessions. 
Um, and what is Jesus' response to that? Today salvation has come to this household. So if we compare the two, both men come to Jesus. Jesus issues an invitation to both men. To the rich young ruler, he says, sell your possessions and come and follow me. To Zacchaeus, he says, Zacchaeus, come, I'm coming to stay with you. But only one of them responds joyfully and generously. So is there perhaps a correlation between generosity and a redeemed heart? I think there is. So I think the obvious question is how do we give? You know, Dave spoke last week about a, the closed circle budget. In our personal finance course with Faith at Work, we talk about an end goal. Um, and when is enough enough? You know, we need to close the circle of our wants. Um, I mean, how do you know how much you can give if you never know when you have enough? It, it just becomes a never-ending circle. I, I can't give because I don't have enough. So Tim Keller in his essay called Creation, Fall, Redemption and Your Money just gives us some practical examples. He said, we should give that, so that our standard of living is lowered. Okay, the tithes should be the basis, but we should go beyond that. We should give generously and joyfully. So our money is ours by grace, and we give it away generously and joyfully. It comes to other people like God's grace. You think about the grace that we've received freely from God without any expectation, without any work on our part, our giving should be like that. And this is really practical. We should give so that we can live a safe and healthy life. We should live so that we are not, or we should give so that we are not a burden to others. And we should give so that we can continue to do good. So he's not saying that if you are in the top 1% of earners in Port Elizabeth and you are earning a million rand a month, that you should give all of that away and go and live in a one-bedroom apartment, okay? Because you are not going to do any good from that. He is saying that we should give to the point where we are still able to advance God's kingdom and to do good to others. Now, I'd like to just, before we move on to the next point, just touch on something that's been quite close to my heart. I find it interesting that in verse 21 of, the, of Mark 10 that we've read, Jesus says, you lack one thing, go and sell your property and give the money to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. In Luke 12, so Luke 12, 22 to 34, Jesus discusses, and, and we've, Dave touched on it last week, you know, he talks about, do not worry. Look at the birds, of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and see how your father clothes them. Therefore, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink. But he ends off with this in, in verse 33 and 34. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide money belts for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing and inexhaustible treasure in heaven. 
Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, there seems to be a correlation between giving your money away and storing up treasures in heaven. And like I said, I've been dwelling on this for a while, but I think that this quote from Jason Top describes it far better than I could. He says, we see that Jesus equates selling possessions and giving to the needy as treasure in heaven. If I were to define it myself, treasure in heaven would be simply be living life with open hearts and open hands. Open hearts means we have a heart that God has. One for the poor, the weak, the disenfranchised and the marginalized. Open hands means that we live with the loose grip mentality so that our earthly goods are not used for our own contentment, but rather are, are used to have an impact on those who are less fortunate for the sake of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur's got a wonderful quote. He says, invest your money in the souls of men and women who will someday greet you in heaven with thanksgiving when you arrive. What a thought, what an incredible thought to take your money and purchase eternal friendships by investing in the kingdom. I think it's, it's worth mentioning here that giving doesn't just have to be money. You know, for those, for those who are fortunate enough for money not to be an issue, you can give your time. You know, and time is, is sometimes more valuable than money to those who have a lot of it. You know, I'm a, I'm a graphic designer by trade and there have been times in the past and I suppose recently where, where I have I've tried to help friends, colleagues, people I don't know, you know, by designing logos and websites and social media posts and marketing strategies. You know, where I haven't been able to give financially, I've been given of my time and my talents that God's given me. So we should be generous with everything that God has entrusted to us. And of course, Jesus should be our ultimate treasure. He's the one that we're living for. He's the one that we should be dedicating our lives and our finances to. So this brings us to our final point then. How should we live with money? I think the answer is simply, you know, we are to live in this world with an eternal perspective. And Randy Alcorn in his, um, in his book, The Treasure Principle, says that we, should be, we shouldn't be living for the dot, which is our time on earth. We should be living with, for the line that extends into eternity. So living simply means that we are to live in a way that is not captive to the trappings of the world. As Mark 10, 23 said earlier, clinging to possessions and status as security. Living simply means that we should live as Keller described, by giving away so much that we lower our standard of living. You know, as Christians, if we are living a redeemed life dedicated to Jesus, we should be poorer, poorer in all aspects of our life. We should be poorer financially in the money that we give. We should be poorer from a time point of view. 
in terms of the time that we dedicate to ministry and to church and you know um, to pray so we should be giving so that it lowers our standard of living John Piper says this he says oh that young people would learn quickly and older people before it's too late that there is no positive correlation between having many things and being very happy a life of simplicity with the governor on your spending and a passion to advance the kingdom through giving will be a far happier life than a life of luxury. So living simply can only be done through a Holy Spirit redeemed heart. We cannot do it on our own and Jesus knows this. That's why he said to his disciples, with people as far as it depends on them it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. So Richard Foster helps us bring this to a conclusion. He says, We need instruction on how to possess money without being possessed by money. We need help to learn how to own things without treasuring them. We need the disciplines that will allow us to live simply while managing great wealth and power. The call of God is upon us to use money within the confines of a properly disciplined spiritual life and to manage money for the good of all humanity and for the glory of God. And when this is done, we are drawn deeper into the divine center and we stand amazed that God would use our meager efforts to fulfill his work upon the earth. So if I can just ask the worship team just to come up while we close here. So, in summary, money amplifies who you are. Where your heart is, reveals where our heart and our allegiances lie. It's the great revealer of our attitudes, of our ambitions and our priorities. Think the rich young ruler in Zacchaeus. Money has a power that we should be cautious of. Is the power to inspire devotions, to compete with our relationship with Jesus, to draw us away from a redeemed and devoted walk with our Lord. And it has the power to bless those around us, revealing God's gift of grace. Money has been designed by God to be a blessing to us and to those around us, and we show the world and our hearts that we are free from materialism when we give freely and joyfully storing up treasures in heaven. And as Christians, our lives should be characterized by simplicity. Our Holy Spirit-inspired generosity should lead us to live simpler lives that enable us to give freely to those around us. Um, so that's the message. Um, if 
there have been a, a few things I've wanted to do today, and but they changed last night and this morning. And I believe that Jesus would stand before us this morning with an invitation. Like he did with the rich young ruler and, and Zacchaeus. And, and he invites us to follow him. And he invites us to fellowship with him. And and I think that maybe there are those of us here today who feel that they can't do that. That they are held back by their financial situations, either maybe from their own doing or things that have, situations that have been done to them. Um, and I would invite you to, if you feel that that is, that, that you're in that situation, that that you would like to respond to the invitation that Jesus places before you. Um, just to start letting the Holy Spirit work in your hearts, in your minds. You know, we can we can be poor not just financially, but spiritually. Um, we can we can let our fears and our anxieties draw us away from God in the same way that, that finances can. And while we were praying this morning before the service, I was just reminded of this verse in Isaiah 55. And this is an invitation to anyone who would like a touch from the Holy Spirit this morning. It doesn't have to just be financially. It can be spiritually. It can be emotionally. But Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 reads like this. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. So if there's anyone here that wants to respond to that, I just invite you just to stand where you are. And just let the Holy Spirit work in your hearts, work in your minds.
out your hands, just, just lay hands on them. desires. 